welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. Hi, I'm Michael Ewald, host of Credit Hour. Today we interview Mark Sweeney, professor of sustainability here at USD, about Missouri River sediment issues that cause problems for downstream bodies of water like Lewis and Clark Lake near Yankton. Mark does a great job of explaining the science and a few possible solutions before it's too late. Mark, how's it going today? It's going great. Now, Mark, you are an associate professor of earth sciences here at the University of South Dakota. I'm wondering if you could just maybe describe to our audience what earth sciences is. Well, uh, so earth sciences is the study of the earth. Uh, it's a it's kind of a subset of geology. And uh, so we learn about the materials of the earth, rocks and minerals. We learn about the hazards of the earth through you know volcanic eruptions, landslides, floods. And we learn how humans also interact with uh, the earth as well. And now you have a... a kind of unique specialty, I think. Um, I, I'm wondering if you can just tell us maybe what it is. That I study dust? Yes, that you study dust. And all my friends want me to come over and look at the dust on their bookshelves. And of course, I, <laughs> I laugh. And But really, that's not the dust that I study. Um, uh, my expertise is in desert dust for the most part. And I'm looking at how the dust is generated, how it gets transported, where it goes, where it deposits. So I look at the whole spectrum of, of you know, where it comes from and, and where it ends up. Well, and, you know, we jokingly refer to dust and the inconvenience it might provide in a, in a house. Obviously, when you're talking about it in terms of, you know, geologic formations, dust can have a huge impact on the way our physical landscape operates. Um, you were recently quoted, I, I think, in a pretty interesting article about the Lewis and Clark Lake um, here near Vermilion and Yankton and the problem associated with sub- sediment accumulation in the Missouri River. Can can you just maybe describe, you know, this issue and what's going on? Yeah. So uh, whenever you put a dam on a river, you're basically blocking the flow. And rivers, uh, in their natural function, basically transport sediment from the mountains down into deltas and oceans. And if you put a, a dam in the way, you're ba- basically blocking the transportation of that sediment along the river. So all the sediment that the Missouri River is carrying is being deposited behind the Gavin's Point Dam in the Lewis and Clark Reservoir. And so eventually, over time, the sediment will fill in the reservoir and uh, you won't have a lake anymore. Um, And that's basically the problem. You know, I thought what was really interesting is one of the statistics in the article, it said that the Army Corps of Engineers had estimated that since 1955, when Gavin Point's dam was completed, um, basically that that part of the Missouri has lost about 27%, or or the Lewis and Clark Lake, I should say, has lost about 27% of its carrying capacity for water. What impact does that have on maybe the natural environment? Um, Also, you know, the economic um, and and social costs that, that, you know, this sediment accumulation might have. That's a good question. So at the beginning, when you put in the dam, you've transformed the river into a lake. So you've transformed habitats right away and into habitats that used to be, you know, populated by a variety of organisms that depended on the flow of the river. And now you have a lake sitting there. And so you've, you're dealing with different types of aquatic organisms. You've generated different types of habitats. Um, these 
This may or may not be positive for birds and a variety of amphibians, uh, depending on you know what's around and what they like. Uh, but you've basically changed um, from a geological perspective the dynamics of the river. Uh, like I was saying, it you used to basically transport that sediment from the Rocky Mountains all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico, and now it's stopped by a large wall. And when you get that lake in there, uh, so you've got uh, higher water than used to that than used to be there before. And so that uh, results in rising water tables uh, in areas near the lake, which might impact people's basements or people's land uh, where you have uh, rising water levels. Um, you um, have had issues with flooding. So Highway 12, for example, that runs along uh, the south side of Lewis and Clark Reservoir uh, towards the town of Niobrara, they're proposing to raise that to minimize flooding. Um, that's been kind of a, a prevalent problem, you know, ever since the, the reservoir was there. Uh, they actually had to relocate the town of Niobrara, Nebraska. It, it was flooded as the reservoir was filling, and you saw rising water tables in that area. It basically became unlivable, and they had to move it up onto the bluff. Um, so we're looking at, at things of that nature, you know, pretty big impacts to the landscape, to the people that live around it. The dam itself, you know, has a lot of positive attributes because it provides um, hydroelectric power for the people of South Dakota. Um, and then the reservoir that was created behind the dam provides uh, recreational opportunities, fishing, boating, canoeing, kayaking. And so... That's great and all, and it provides a lot of revenue for the, the towns surrounding the lake. But if you fill in that reservoir with sediment, you're going to eventually reduce the hydroelectric capacity of the dam. You're going to reduce boating and other recreational opportunities on the lake, which could have a potentially devastating economic impact to the surrounding towns. Yeah, you know, the, the same article that I mentioned, it, it estimated that over a million people vis visit the Lewis and Clark Lake every year, which obviously has, you know, a huge economic impact. Um, one thing that I thought was really interesting in some of the research that, that you have done on this specific problem is, you know, the, the changes in the biodiversity. And, and you obviously talked about this a little bit, you know, in, in terms of changing from a, a river sort of ecosystem to a lake ecosystem. Um, but the actual, you know, when the sediment comes up, even the, the sort of, you know, grass that, that grows on, on this particular type of sediment is different than, than maybe the natural river grass that would just normally grow on the Missouri River. And it, it's a less kind of bountiful ecosystem that it creates. I'm, I'm curious why that is and, and maybe what the impact of that is in terms of just changing, you know, the environment here in South Dakota. Yeah, so um, we, we had, I'm part of a group on campus called the Missouri River Institute, which contains a number of faculty that work on research is issues related to the, the Missouri River. And uh, we, we wrote a report a few years ago that looked not only at the sedimentation problem, but some of the habitat and biodiversity of vegetation, excuse me, vegetation in the Delta area. And so the biologists know way more about that than I do. <laughs> but the, the kind of the bottom line is when you created these new areas of land in this delta that's basically uh, moving into the lake, um, you get plants that colonize that landscape 
and they, I'm trying to think about how to, to, to say this. So it, it's, it's almost kind of like a monoculture where you've got the dominance of, of invasive species and they just take over the whole thing and they limit other types of vegetation from coming in and creating a more diverse habitat. And I think if you took humans out of the equation, you would tend to have a more diverse habitat in that area. But because we've got lots of invasive species in this area, they tend to take over oh, interesting. And, and dominate the system. You know, another thing that I thought was really interesting about your research was the kind of tributaries and how they um, you know, interact and contribute to the sediment problem. And so, you know, as you kind of did sediment studies and you would take, um, and maybe you can explain this, I guess, I guess that, that would be better for our audience. How, how did you sort of study this issue when you did your study? Yeah, so a little bit of background there. So... Around 2001, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers came out with the first big report that was emphasizing the sedimentation problem in the reservoir. And they basically pointed the finger at uh, Niobrara River, which is the largest tributary entering into that section of the Missouri River. And it contains a lot of sediment. And they estimated that about half of the sediment that was uh, being delivered to the delta uh, to the sedimentation problem was coming from the Niobrara River. And then the remaining sediment, they basically split up more or less equitably among all of the other tributaries entering into the Missouri River as well as the Missouri River itself. And that right there really got me interested because they, they basically said, well, we know approximately how big the piece of pie is that that the Niobrara represents in terms of the sedimentation problem. We don't really know what these other tributaries are doing, so we're just going to kind of, you know, split up the piece of the pie equally. With And so that is based on no data. They had not collected any data. So I'm thinking, oh, well, how could we go about and and see how much sediment these other smaller tributaries are contributing to the system. But because before we actually pick a solution to the problem, we really need to know where all the sediment is coming from before we blame the Niobrara for all of the problems, for example. And so um, I used uh, a geochemical method. It's kind of like fingerprinting where the sediment comes from. So you and I have unique fingerprints that identify us. Um, individually, you can look at the elemental composition of sediment, and each tributary might have a unique fingerprint or a unique variety of different elements that uh, compose that sediment. Hmm. And so I collected sediment from these different tributaries from the delta in the Missouri River and then upstream in the Missouri River itself to see if I could get a better handle on where that sediment was coming from using that fingerprinting technique. You know, and, and what were the results then? Did they sort of confirm what the Army Corps of Engineers had, you know, originally hypothesized? Yeah, in a manner of speaking. So the Niobrara River really is the largest contributor of sediment to the Delta. Why is that? Um, well, it's it's the largest tributary. Okay. And it's basically draining the Nebraska Sandhills, which is okay. a big area of ancient dunes. It, it's basically a big pile of loose sand, and when the Niobrara River cuts through that, it, it easily erodes that sand and then transports it uh, ultimately down into the Missouri River. 
You know, I think this you know, kind of boils down to we know what might cause the problem. We know a problem exists. How do we solve mm-hmm. the problem? Yeah, so the the results showed that the Niobrara River is, is one of the largest contributors. In addition, we found that the Missouri River probably also contributes a lot more sediment than the Army Corps of Engineers had initially estimated. And then the other small tributaries probably don't contribute but a few percent. So once we know the two main contributors of sediment, we can start looking at them more specifically about how to reduce the amount of sediment that's coming into the Delta area. Now take the Missouri River, for example. If about 35% of the sediment is coming from the Missouri River itself, how do you stop that? And that sediment coming downstream from the next dam upstream, which is the Fort Randall Dam. So 35% of the sediment is coming into the delta from downstream of that dam from channel erosion and maybe some bank erosion. And it's probably mostly coming from the channel. And there really isn't a way to stop that. So uh, we have to potentially look at the Niobrara River where you get a lot of sediment coming from channel erosion and bank erosion as well. And other researchers have suggested that if we can reduce bank erosion by planting vegetation along the banks, that could reduce the amount of sediment coming into the delta, ultimately prolonging the life of the reservoir. You know, one thing that I thought was interesting is they kind of have these hypothetical you know, dates in the future of when the mm. reservoir, you know, might completely fill up if, um, you know, the sediment problem continues. You know, the date that, that I have found was was 2175. That might seem like a, a long ways away, but what, what you know, you already talked about the, the flooding with the Niobrara. I mean, how urgent of a, of a problem is this? It, you know, when we talk about bank erosion, I mean, every day, you know, every hour, every second of the day, the bank might be eroding. Um, how much time do we have, I guess, to really kind of dig our hands into this and, and figure out a way to you know, preserve these recreational opportunities, hydroelectric power into the future? Yeah, so um, we, so we know that based on estimates from the Army Corps of Engineers that about 5 million tons of sediment are added to the Delta every year. And the Army Corps of Engineers and the Missouri River Institute used those numbers to try and generate these snapshots into the future of of where the delta will be, where the sediment in in the reservoir will be. And so that's where the, the 2175 number came from. Basically, that's how long it'll take to fill up the lake. And... You ask a really good question, when's the critical time uh, when basically we're going to lose hydroelectric capacity, uh, boating opportunities, and the like? And and that's kind of hard to say, but um, the halfway point between now and then is approximately somewhere between 2075 and 2100, where you're going to really significantly lose a lot of the reservoir capacity. And so... Um, that's, you know, basically the next generation of people that are going to be dealing with this. And um, another interesting issue related to this is that um, a lot of people and some previous scientists thought that the delta kind of grows gradually every year, and there is sediment always being added to the lake due to normal processes of river flow and whatnot. 
But part of our research found that the biggest pushes of sediment into the reservoir occur during high flow years, like okay. the 2011 flood and the previous high flow year in 1997. Those really add a lot of sediment to, to the reservoir. So if we have more of those into the future, that will cause the lake potentially to fill up faster. But to, to answer your question more specifically, I think we should probably start acting sooner than later, within the next couple of years. I think now that we're, we have a, a more clear idea of where the sediment is coming from, we can start to talk more seriously about what to do with, with the sediment problem. You know, before you know, we started recording, I sort of told my parable from, from coming from Watertown, South Dakota. We have Lake Compesca, which is a lake that uh, always seems to need to be dredged. I know Mitchell, you know, their, hmm. their body of water is dealing sort of with these lake dredging. I know these are different than sort of the Missouri River sediment accumulation. Uh, you know, I'm curious... Do we have a, a better knowledge, understanding uh, of how rivers work and how these bodies of water work? Are we making better um, land use decisions when we build around lakes and rivers to you know, preserve these bodies of waters into the future? Or are we kind of still stuck in the past in, in terms of how we you know, develop? I, I think we're kind of stuck in the past. I'll be pretty frank there. Um, we, it, people want that lake view. And when you overdevelop uh, some of these these uh, lake properties, you have to contend with not only the um, disturbance of the landscape by building the house and putting in the roads, but do these places have septic systems? And if so, where is that septic system draining to? Probably towards the lake. Uh, you have runoff from the streets that are in the neighborhoods surrounding the lake. Where does that runoff go? The lake. So ultimately, as you build around these these lake areas, you, you, there, there's almost no choice but to degrade the water quality and the lake environment. It's very difficult to, to minimize pollution as a result of, of the, you know, that the building around those lake areas. Yeah, to, to switch direction into another area of, of research for you, um, you study the 1930s Dust Bowl. Um, and, and I'm curious, you know, I feel like as a kid, you kind of hear about the old parable, right? We didn't have the shelter belts, and that really contributed to, you know, the, the, the topsoil being taken out. How much of, you know, those baby stories we, we heard in South Dakota, a place like that in our public education system, because I think that we are obviously so, you know, tied to the land and, and we're, you know, still a pretty rural agrarian um, society. How much of that is, is true, you know, when you study it, you know, at a scientific and like PhD level? Yeah, I got asked by some researchers at Baylor University to partake in this research. So I want to provide that, you know, credit where credit is due. Um, and based on my background in dust, it, it was a very compelling research question that they had. So you mentioned we've grown up in the school system, many of us may have watched the Ken Burns PBS special <laughs> yeah. on the Dust Bowl, which was, you know, pretty amazing. And you, you got it right. So the basic idea is that uh, we had a drought. 
uh, agriculture was expanding across the plains pretty dramatically. We broke the soil, um, pulverized it, and when the drought set in, the topsoil blew away, creating these huge dust storms all the way from North Dakota down to Texas, blowing dust all the way out to the eastern seaboard and up to Greenland. You know, the dust is preserved in Greenland ice cores, so it was a huge deal. And so basically the book was closed. It was, uh, the blame was placed on the farmers who didn't know how to manage their soils properly in the middle of a, a huge drought. Well, my colleagues at Baylor had been looking at uh, some of the aerial photographs, some of the earliest aerial photographs we have of this country from the 1930s. And they found not only were the fields blowing, but some of the grasslands adjacent to these farm fields had become reactivated. They're dunes, sand dunes, think of the Sahara, that are covered with carpets of grass. And during this drought, that grass cover had reduced and these dunes started to blow. And so not only, basically the, the, the story is, is that not only did you have dust coming from agricultural fields, you also had dust coming from natural sources. And scientifically, if you look at the estimates of the amount of topsoil loss during the 1930s Dust Bowl, it doesn't exactly match the amount of dust that was um, estimated to have been lofted into the atmosphere. In fact, they estimate more dust was lofted into the atmosphere than had been eroded from the farm fields. So the big question is, how do you make up for that discrepancy? Right. Natural sources. So the, in the end, we can rewrite the story a little bit. So yes, farm fields were still a significant source of dust during the Dust Bowl, but there was a component that was natural as well. So it takes a little bit of blame off the farmers. And it shows that when you do have a big drought, landscapes do change, and you can have dust being generated uh, naturally as well as due to human causes. You know, I know we've really talked about a local problem um, here in South Dakota. What other maybe dust-related problems exist, uh, you know, in the world? You sometimes hear about, like, you know, in Africa, you know, the, the Sahara getting larger and larger and larger. Um, what in your research ha have you been able to discover about, you know, other dust-related issues elsewhere? Uh, so I did go to China in 2013 uh, to study dust emissions from their uh, northern deserts and their sand dune areas. And there's been an interesting idea uh, put forward by um, some uh, geologists in Israel that suggests sand dunes actually are a pretty big um, source of dust. So um, when the wind blows sediments around, it either piles it up into large sand dunes or it creates these huge dust storms. So the sand dunes are made of gritty sand. Uh, the dust storms are made of powdery silt, you know, with the consistency of flour that you would use to bake cakes and cookies. And so the wind does a really good job of blowing that finer grain dust downwind, and then it accumulates and creates something like the Lus Hills that we've got in, okay. in Iowa. And then the sand dunes create those, you know, those big rolling hills of, of sand. And the sand dunes themselves don't have a lot of silt in them. They don't have that powdery material because it's all coarse grain sand. 
But more research is showing that dunes actually do create dust just through chipping of sand grains as they're bouncing around on the ground and bouncing into each other. They create their own silt. And that's been really un- underappreciated. And, and uh, so a lot of the places that I've been working, I've been um, uh, uh, collecting more and more data that's evidence to show that dunes are, are big um, dust emitters as well. You know, one thing that we haven't spoken very much about um, is obviously, you know, the research collaboration that you do with undergraduate students here. You mm-hmm. um, mentioned before our interview that you, you know, help out with the Sustainable River REU, the research um, experience for undergraduate, which is the National Science Foundation um, funded grant. Can you just tell us maybe a little bit about some of the research that you do with, with our students here? Yeah, so one of the reasons that attracted me to, to USD back in 2006 was, was that I would have the opportunity to mentor undergraduate students in research. And that's what really got me interested in my field of study. Um, I did an undergraduate research project, and then I went to graduate school, and now here I am. And so I kind of wanted to pay it back in that respect. So um, even though my expertise is in dust, and I study dust in a lot of different places, the REU that we have on campus is Missouri River focused. And um, I have a background in sedimentology and geomorphology, and I can study rivers and I can study deserts. And so um, I, I use some of my background to, to study something in my own backyard. And I'd been working a lot with Tim Kalman through the South Dakota Geological Survey and the Missouri River Institute, just getting students out on the river, looking at things from how much uh, sediment our river's carrying, um, how do sandbars evolve since the 2011 flood, um, or even, you know, how did those sandbars create dust after the 2011 flood? So that was kind of a neat link between, you know, my primary expertise and what's happening on the river. So the REU that we have on campus, which is a research undergraduate experience um, paid, uh, sponsored by the National Science Foundation, has brought 12 undergraduates from across the country. It includes USD students as, as well as other students from Massachusetts and um, Iowa and Pennsylvania and, and other places to work on some aspect of, of the Missouri River or its basin. And so there are students who are doing uh, cultural surveys uh, of um, Native American people and other people uh, that live in the basin. There's people that are doing bird surveys. Um, I have a student who's looking at sediment being delivered by some of the main tributaries in our area. And so uh, it's really neat to um, mentor a student, to take them out into the field, to teach them these uh, different types of uh, ways to do field research. And then also back in the lab, how do you do experiments in the lab? And in the end, these undergraduates take away with them this tool belt that you know, not only can they learn about these things in the classroom, now they've really done it. And if they want to go on to graduate school, they have that experience. And it might give them a leg up uh, if they wanted to get into a highly competitive graduate program. Well, that kind of segues into the next question I wanted to ask, which was, you know, if you are a young person and you're interested in you know, a career in the sciences, a career in um, natural environment, geology, earth sciences, um, 
what would you recommend, you know, maybe someone in high school who's just thinking about it, like, what can they do to prepare themselves maybe for the college experience? So if you're interested in in science, make sure you you talk with your science teachers a lot. Um, Participate in the South Dakota Science Olympiad, perhaps. Uh, That that might be a good good thing to do. Um, And when you do get to college, you know, don't be afraid to talk to your professors. We're human beings just like everybody else. But I, I know a lot of students are, are really apprehensive to come and talk to their professors. And I sit in my office and, and wait for students to come by, and it's like crickets chirping at night, you know. And, and um, it, it, you learn a whole lot more if you come and talk to us, and then you might be exposed to opportunities you might not otherwise have if you know if you didn't come and, and talk to us. So uh, c- communication is a great thing. Um, the last question that we generally like to ask our guests is a little bit more reflective. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you have an interesting career. You you study something that you know a lot of people might just not even pay attention to. Yes. Right? I think that's what's like kind of interesting about it. It, is, it can be very mundane. <laughs> yeah. Well, but but you know obviously this entire conversation. I mean the the sheer impact of how you know, these small grains of sand can, can have on the larger picture. Um, been able to do cool things like travel internationally. Obviously, you get to work with students, which I, I think is always awesome. You get to be inspired kind of by their energy, enthusiasm. You know, at this point in your life, what do you know for sure? What do I know for sure? Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, I know that I want to keep learning new things. I mean, that's one of the things that reasons why I became a scientist it's, I don't want to just learn X plus Y. My knowledge base keeps evolving. And, you know, as I, you know, you, you think you know it all when you're young, you don't. And it, so throughout my career, I keep learning more and more, not only just as a scientist, but I keep learning more and more about a te- a, a, to, as a teacher, you know, and how to engage with, with students at the college level. And so I know some things. But I certainly don't don't know it all, and uh, I guess what I know for sure is that things are, are constantly changing, and we need to be able to to you know to understand how that's going to impact us in the future. We need to you know keep studying these things. That's why science is so important. We don't know everything about science. Some people think we've figured it all out already. There are so many questions that that need to be answered, and so. That's what I know, is that we need to know more stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Mark, thank you so, so much, and maybe we'll see you out on the river. All right. Thanks for talking with me. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grade, so we hope you enjoyed the episode. Next week, we speak with former director of Native Student Services, Gene Thin Elk, who recently retired from USD after 30 years of service. Until next time, go Yotes.